and welcome to another episode of Christ in Context, a podcast dedicated to seeing Christ in all of Scripture and using all of Scripture to filter all of life. My name is Kevin, your host, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Welcome to the show. Hello, and welcome to episode 16 of Christ in Context. I'm so glad that you are listening. Today we're going to be doing something that's different. Normally we either do an out-of-context episode or um, a study in Zechariah, as we have been. And I wanted to share something that's been going on in my life. Um, This past weekend, yesterday, um, I was able to preach at my home church, and it was a super, super great blessing. And so I just kind of wanted to set the stage and the context, um, just for those of you who maybe haven't been you know, you don't you don't know where I'm from. You don't know the church. Um, we're a small church plant, and we don't have really great recording material. And so I try to do the best that I can to make the audio, you know, accessible and pleasant to the ears. Um, but also, just on another note, like we have been studying through the Book of Acts, um, just verse by verse, and uh, it's been a really great time. And so our pastor, his name is Charlie. You'll hear me reference him a lot throughout the sermon, just saying his name, um, especially at the beginning. And um, he was just out of town and asked me to fill in for him. And it was was a really great blessing for me. Um, It helped me grow. And I've only preached maybe a dozen or a little over a dozen times. And so um, I'm still new. So I, I hope that you're gracious to me. But if if you're blessed by it, uh, let me know. Uh, I, I hope that you are blessed by it. That's why I'm putting this out. Um, on another note, I also wanted to just ask that if there's anything that I've said in the past, or, um, maybe if there's something in the next couple episodes that I say that's confusing or like, I guess has kind of gone over your head or something that maybe you did enjoy, but you just want me to slow down and explain what I'm saying let me know. Um, reach out to me through email at ChristInContextPod, all one word, at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook and Instagram um, or Twitter and reach out to me that way. So with all of that being said, I hope that you enjoy this brief sermon. It's about 35 minutes and uh, it's on Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, specifically Saul's conversion. And I had a lot of fun with it, um, and I, I hope it's a blessing to all of you and something that brings encouragement. I, I don't mean it by any means to be some type of uh, pastoral authority on your life, but just something to bless you and encourage you. So thanks for taking the time to listen. Good morning, everyone. My name is Kevin. Um, I don't know if you guys all know me, but I am a student at Olivet, and I'm trying to get my mask away. Um, so I am up here because Charlie is gone, and I'm also, I've been kind of studying under Charlie. I'm a, I've got a double major at Olivet. It's my last year. Um, I'm studying biblical studies and theology, so um, the Bible is kind of my thing. Um, <laughs> Glad someone thought that was funny. <laughs> um, let's see. I'm trying to get myself set up. I apologize. Okay. 
So we are in Acts. Um, just a, I guess a little bit about myself because I don't know a lot of you guys. I know I've seen a lot of your faces, um, but I don't like if you guys don't know me and you know we don't know each other that well. So I did not grow up Christian. I was raised in a nominally Catholic home, and uh, we kind of went to church until I was in like fourth or fifth grade, and then we stopped. Um, to keep things short, I got saved going into my sophomore year of high school. Um, I was living as a blatant rebel against God. The rest of my family, there is a fly up here. Wow. Oh, man. There it is. All right. Um, so the rest of my family was saved. They were living their lives in submission to Christ, and I was just a punk. There's all kinds of nonsense, and so that, that's just a little bit about me. I think I understand why Charlie runs around the stage so much, just to get away from these flies. So we've been going through Acts, and um, we have seen in the, in the very beginning the church was pretty small, and then as the apostles were teaching and preaching, there was this explosive growth. And we see Peter and John get, I don't know if we'd say arrested, but they were put on trial before the Sanhedrin and told basically, hey, stop doing what you're doing. And they didn't because Christ was risen from the dead. There's nothing else that they could talk about. We had also seen um, Ananias and Sapphira, part of this explosive growth in the church. And they had sold some of, well, they sold their property, kept some of the money, lied. And Peter says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And so they dropped dead separately. Ananias dies, Sapphira comes in later, she drops dead. It's pretty nuts. So then there's seven disciples who are chosen to keep ministering uh, more directly to the church while the apostles continue to preach and uh, share the word of God with people. And one of those disciples ends up getting killed. His name is Stephen. And this is the first martyr of the Christian movement. And so at this point, the church scatters. They all go, like, they were all kind of lumped up in Jerusalem. They all scatter all throughout Judea. Um, And so at this point, also, we are introduced to Saul for the first time. And the passage that we're going to be going through um, is where we meet Saul for a second time. And we will, from this point on, continue to be studying, like, uh, closer in on Saul. Um, but before that, there is Philip last week, um, or two weeks ago, Charlie was talking about how Philip went to Samaria, Peter and John follow, and then last week, um, Philip goes to the desert, shares the gospel with an Ethiopian eunuch, and this eunuch receives Christ, and then Philip gets teleported. <laughs> There's not much that said. I wish that Luke would have said more about, like, what went on. It just says, he gets teleported, Bam. He's gone. Like, I just wish there was more about that. That's pretty cool. So anyways, now we are zooming in on the life of Saul. And it's at this point where some people say that God changed Saul's name to Paul. And that's not what happened. I'm just going to lay it on, there, on you. I don't know if you've believed that your whole life, but that's not true. Saul was his Hebrew name probably named after King Saul from about a thousand years before him. And Paul is his Roman name. And I think Charlie is going to 
um, explain a little bit more why he chooses to go by Paul in all of his writings, but most of it is just because Paul is a pretty popular name. There's a guy who is really well-known throughout the Roman Empire whose name is Paul, and so he goes by Paul. He says, oh, I have an opportunity to get known pretty quick. So anyways, um, we are in Acts chapter 9, verses uh, 1 through 9. I'm going to read the whole section, and then we're going to go a couple verses at a time. So starting in verse 1, it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked, uh, asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Oh, I just smacked the fly out of the air. Uh, so they led him by the hand and... Uh, brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. This is the word of the Lord. So I want to make a point to say at the very beginning what I believe this text is saying, and we'll unpack what I'm talking about, but I believe that this text is a template or kind of an outline of our interaction with God. And when you hear me say that, you think, like, no, I don't know a single person who has been walking on a road or, you know, walking down the sidewalk, and then a flash of light surrounds them, and God speaks to them from heavens. And you're right, that doesn't really happen anymore. But the point that's important is that God confronts his people. He confronts everyone. For those he is saving, he confronts us in our sin, calls us to repentance. And for everyone else, he's seen clearly in his creation, and we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So let's go back to Acts 9, verses 1 and 2, where it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So we're getting this picture of Saul, he's not just a person. If you, well, if you remember um, in chapter, at the end of chapter 7 or beginning of chapter 8, where Stephen is stoned, it says that Saul heartily approved of the murder of Stephen. And so we're going back to Saul, and he, he is a person who hates the Christian movement. He absolutely despises every single person who talks about Jesus in a positive light. He wants to get rid of everyone possible. And in his mind, it's for good reason. He thinks he's righteous. He's a Pharisee. He knows that he's getting rid of these people who are blaspheming the name of God by saying that this man is also God. And so he's doing his job as a Pharisee to get rid of these blasphemers. He's not trying to, you know, suppress some type of, like, 
I don't know, some type of like Enneagram, like childhood wound or something. Like, no, he thinks he's doing everything right. There's nothing wrong in his mind. He knows what he's doing. And so he gets permission from the high priest, and he asks him for letters to go to the synagogues. And uh, the synagogue specifically at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way. And at this point, up until this point, we've kind of seen Christians referred to as those belonging to the way. And that might be uh, referring to when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's just some kind of uh, Christianese like code language for, hey, we're, we believe in Christ. We belong to Christ. We belong to the only way to be made right with, with God. And so he goes to the high priest. This is the highest of highest authorities in Jerusalem and throughout the uh, Jewish religion. Like, if, if there's anyone who's going to give you permission to do what you want to do as a Jew, the high priest is the guy. So he can go up to Damascus and drag these people out of their synagogues, throw them in prison, bring them back to Jerusalem. And I want to point us to uh, Luke chapter 21, because this is the same author. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote Acts as well. And so I want to go to Luke 21, because he records how Jesus warns his disciples, and he tells them what kind of things uh, they will face. And he talks about the end times, but he also says in verse, verses 12 and 13, he says, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Uh, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. And so the great irony that is in this is Paul is the one who is, and I'm, I'm going to use Saul and Paul interchangeably. I apologize. That's why I mentioned that they're the same person, that God didn't change his name. I, it's too confusing for me to try to say Saul in this text and then Paul later. But at, So Saul is the one who drags people out of synagogues. He is breathing murder. Like he, the, the language in Greek is literally like he's breathing murder into them. Like he's like, almost like he's breathing down their neck, like constantly chasing them down, like trying to find every last one to, to get rid of them. And then later on, as we'll see, he becomes the very thing that he was trying to destroy. He becomes the giver of this murder to the receiver of the murder. And it's, it's so interesting how Christ can change our lives so radically and entirely flip our lives on its head. And so... Uh, as I mentioned, Saul thought that everything he was doing was righteous and good. I want to turn also to uh, Philippians chapter 3 just to get a clearer picture of who Saul understood himself to be. He knows exactly what he was doing. So Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 4, he writes himself, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day 
of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. So not only was he righteous in his flesh, he didn't just uphold the law to the nth degree, but he was so zealous about upholding the law that he was willing to go and persecute the church. And uh, where are we at? As a persecutor of the, as a righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Uh, sorry, I skipped ahead of verse, but we'll we'll come back to that verse and uh, later on. So let's continue to Acts nine three through six, where he says. Uh, Luke records, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And Damascus is, just for your own understanding, Jerusalem is kind of in this southern um, area of Judea, and Damascus is north of there. And it's part of this clump of ten cities called the Decapolis. And you might read in the other Gospels, where they refer to the Decapolis. And it's this clump of ten cities. Damascus is one of these ten cities. And so I'm, my understanding is that Saul is thinking that these people belonging to the way have scattered. There's this huge population up north. There's probably a good chance I can find some of them up there. So I'm going to go up north and try to find some of these people. So as he went on his way to Damascus... Uh, Suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. This light falls on him. And there's some people who don't believe the gospel but are still biblical scholars, and they've tried to count, like, use their own reason and say, like, oh, well, if you've ever been to uh, Israel in the, like, in the middle of the day, it gets pretty hot. The sun gets, gets pretty bright. You know, clearly he just had a heat stroke or something. The problem with that is that there was a voice that came out of heaven as well. And it wasn't just him who heard the voice, but the people who were walking with him heard the voice. And uh, Paul, the voice that comes from heaven says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And at this point, Saul knows that this is a divine encounter because there's a flash of light, and then there's this double name, like this double call of his name. And if you've read through the Old Testament, you might pick up on this idea that when God is calling someone for a purpose, he uses their name twice. So like Moses at the burning bush, he says, Moses, Moses. When he calls Samuel to be the prophet, he says, Samuel, Samuel. It's a theme throughout the Old Testament. And it comes up again when God calls Saul. He says, Saul, Saul. So he knows, okay, I'm being confronted by the Lord, but I thought I was doing what's right. What do you mean I'm persecuting you? I'm doing your work. I'm getting rid of these people who are blaspheming. Like, that's what I'm supposed to do, right? And so he falls to the ground, uh, and while he's on the ground, he says, Who are you, Lord? And the voice says, I am Jesus the one who you are persecuting. And 
Rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So now Saul, his whole world has been flipped. Because there's no arguing that this is the divine presence. He knows that this is the divine presence confronting him. And uh, he, he knows that there's nothing else that he can do to argue his way out of it. He knows uh, that he, he hears this is Jesus, and he was trying to destroy Jesus. But there's also this really, really neat little subtle message that Luke is sending us in the way that he recounts how this happened. Because instead of Jesus saying, why are you persecuting my people? He says, why are you persecuting me? And so there's this tight and intimate connection between Jesus and his people. Wherever we go, Jesus is there also. I'm, I'm sure some of us have heard the saying that, uh, I mean, you might have heard it in a couple different ways where some people who don't really like to go to church have maybe said, oh, I can, I can have the groom, but I don't need the bride. Or I can have the head, I don't, I don't need the body. Or uh, some, something along the lines of that. Maybe we've heard it the other way, though where I would say, because I am married, that you cannot have the groom without the bride. If you were trying to be friends with me, like Saul is trying to be friends with God, he's trying to be a good servant and steward of what God has given him, and yet he's neglecting the people and killing the people that God has ordained to be his people. And so if you're trying to be friends with me and you know, say you bought me a bunch of books, I would be so thankful if you bought me a bunch of books. But then you start talking smack about my wife. We're done. We're not, we're not going to be friends. And I will give you your books back. Because you, you can have your books. That's my wife. You, like, you can't. It's not happening. And that, that's how defensive Jesus is about his people. And sure, we can have, uh, you can get philosophical about it and say like, oh, well, before everything was created, God existed independently of himself, independently of his people. Yes, I understand that's true. But the way that he has designed it to be in this moment in time is that everywhere that the church goes, Christ will be seen. Christ goes with his people. And so, as we've seen, Christ has confronted Saul in his sin. And as I've said before, this is a template of our interaction with God. This is an outline that he confronts us. So I want to go to Ephesians chapter 2 for a particular reason, because we've seen how, how Paul has said that he is righteous. He acknowledged that he was righteous according to the flesh. But I want to also point something else. I want to point out something else that he has said about himself as well um, regarding his spiritual stance before God. So Ephesians chapter 2, he writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the 
of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. So Paul draws the connection that he was also dead in his sins. No matter how righteous he was, no matter how magnificent he was as a Pharisee, he's dead in his sins. There's nothing that he could do to actually please God because he was still living as a rebel against God. And we were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. Not only are we dead in our sins, but we're children of wrath. And he's including himself in this. He knows not only was he righteous, but he was a child of wrath, deserving the eternal punishment of sin. Just like the rest of us. Like the rest of mankind. But God... I, I love this part of this verse. I just want to like... But... God. Like, this is the gospel. We are dead in our sins. There's nothing we can do to please him. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. And it's with, this, with Paul's understanding, it's not this passive thing of being, a made, being made alive, but being confronted in your sin. And knowing that there's no other way to be made right with God except to have faith in Christ. So he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And I think when I, when I read this, I think of the, how Jesus describes the last days where Christ will come and he will separate the sheep from the goats. And we, as the people who have had faith in Christ, will be able to join in the riches of His mercy, the immeasurable riches of... Sorry, I love, oh my gosh, these words are so small. The immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. While the rest of everyone else who has not believed perishes for eternity. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And how much richer does that make the grace of God? That it's by His grace. There's nothing that we can do. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And right here, where, where Paul is, where he's confronted and he's, his whole world is being flipped on its head, he is becoming a new creation to do the good works that God has laid out before him.
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so we continue this story in Acts 9, verses 7 to 9, where uh, the, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless. And, like, I don't know about you guys, but I would also be speechless if I was walking with a Pharisee. And I forgot to mention this earlier, but Saul later in, um, I think it's Acts 22, he taught, he's speaking before a bunch of Jewish leaders, and he says that he studied under Gamaliel. And most of you guys, it probably just goes straight over your head. You have no idea who Gamaliel is. In terms of Jewish history, Gamaliel is the top dog of Jewish interpreters of the Torah and Jewish writings. Like, to this day, he is still read regularly because he's the top dog. And so for Saul to be the guy who has studied under him for years, memorizing the Torah memorizing the Jewish scriptures, that's a big deal. And so all these guys who are walking with him see Saul get knocked on the ground, and they hear this sound. And later, uh, as Paul recounts it later on when he's before the, the Jewish leaders and then before King Agrippa, he says that the, the people that were with him didn't hear the voice, they just heard the sound. And that's, that shouldn't be a big deal for us because in, in Greek, the same word uh, means voice or sound. And so we, like, we, could under, we could also translate this as they heard the sound. They stood speechless uh, hearing, the, hearing the sound or the voice, but seeing no one. So they're standing there not knowing what to do because the guy that they were supposed to just follow and watch drag out these, these Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem, now he, he can't do anything. Why can't he do anything? Because he rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And just imagine that you are confronted by Christ with this flash of light and you hear his voice from heaven, you hear him say, why are you persecuting me? And that's the last thing you see for three days. Do you think that's going to change your life a little bit? Like, this is a radical transformation that he's going to go through. And so he's got his eyes open, he's not seeing anything, He's blinded from the glory of Christ. And so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. So he continues to go where he was planning on going because they were almost there, and the plans have changed. First of all, he's blind. So he's not going to do a good job at going into a synagogue and picking out who the Christians are and who the non-Christians are, because he can't really see. (laughs) The other thing is he has been clearly confronted by Christ. So he knows that he 
can't continue to live in rebellion against Christ. So for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. And Charlie's going to pick up on where all of this goes uh, next week. And so he's, he's got this, he's blind, and he has this image of Christ ingrained into his mind. And he's just fasting, soaking up the glory and the, the riches of what he has just seen, probably weeping many, many times over how wretched and broken he truly is, that even though on the outside he's got it, he's got it made. Pharisee of the Pharisees, he followed the law to the T, and yet he's probably weeping because he wasn't right with Christ. And so I want to go back to Philippians 3 where he had already explained the righteousness that he had in his flesh, and yet he says, uh, picking it back up in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. It's, Paul is saying that everything that he had going for him is worthless. There's, there's nothing else that he could want except for knowing Christ. No matter how righteous he thought he was, no matter how righteous you think you are, it's nothing in comparison to knowing Christ. And he, he continues that to be found in him, not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, which he could have attained, but that which comes through the faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's the righteousness that depends on faith, that truly justifies us before God. And even though we're dead in our sins, He will justify us when we have faith in Him. And uh, nothing that He could do could save Him. And so it's at this point that He is in the very process of losing every single thing that he thought he had going for him. He's getting rid of it. He's almost shedding his skin, so to speak. I don't know why that's the idea that comes to mind, but like he's dropping things that could have gained his flesh, but it wouldn't have gained him in knowing Christ Jesus. And so he's just getting rid of it all. And so with, con- I guess in conclusion, uh, I wanted to um, challenge us all that I said at the beginning that this passage is a template. It's an outline for how we interact with God, how he confronts us in our sin. So I want to challenge you guys. What are, 
What is God confronting you in? Because he confronts every single one of us. As Christians, he had to confront us in order to draw us to him. And now we have the Holy Spirit in us after we have repented and had faith in him. We have the Holy Spirit in us, and so we are confronted every single day where he is shaping us, cutting off bits and pieces that aren't godly, and he's transforming us into the image of Christ. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're just here for the first time. I don't, I don't know everyone. I don't know everyone's story. I don't know where you're at. But maybe you're, you're not a Christian. You're not really sure about who this Jesus guy really is. But let me tell you that you live in his world. Everywhere that you go, you're confronted by the reality of him. And Romans chapter 1 says that we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So even though God has made himself clear, and like he's made it clear that there is a creator God in creation, we suppress the truth. But we can't get away from it because we're living in his world. He made it. We are the creature. He is the creator. We can't get away from him. So let this be a message to you to turn from your sins, to repent. That God is first and foremost confronting us in our sin to call us to repent and to have faith in him. So for those of us who are, who are Christians, he might be confronting us about sin that's in our life or, or something that we're not giving up. We're not counting it as loss. You know, there might be one thing where we're like, man, I'll lose everything, but I want to keep that one thing. I don't, I don't want to lose that one thing. But, but is there something in your life that God is confronting you and saying, no, you have to give that up too? Because in giving that up, you will be more conformed to the image of Christ. You will look more like Christ if you give that thing up than if you don't. Or as I already said, is he confronting you to repent and believe? So with that being said, let's pray. And I know I went shorter than I said I was going to, but um, let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your message. Thank you that you have revealed yourself in your word. Thank you that um, you confront us. That even though we are people who are dead and live hostile towards you, you step in and you tell us to repent because of your great mercy and the love that you have for us. Jesus, I ask that you would continue to transform us and make us closer into your image. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Christ in Context. If you enjoyed the episode, give us a rating and a review through Apple Podcasts or whatever streaming app you use to listen. And subscribe to be notified when new content is posted. You can find us on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Christ in Context Pod and Twitter at CNC Podcast. If you have a question that you would like to hear answered on the show, 
reach out on social media, or email us at ChristInContextPod at gmail.com. We are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters and Doctrinal Discipleship. For other edifying material, check out ReformPodcasts.com and Doctrinal Discipleship either on Facebook or DoctrinalDiscipleship.com.